Good morning. My name is Andrew Maxwell. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 18, 22 through 33. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Sergey. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me pray before we preach. Our Father, we are thankful that we can gather around your word and hear from you. And so that is our prayer that you would speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would use me, your servant, to preach your gospel to your people for your glory. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking at the story of Abraham throughout this, this fall season. And we've seen how grace breaks into his life and produces remarkable changes. He's still a flawed person. We see a lot of failures as well. But there are some changes that are taking root, and today it's one of those quite a remarkable transformations that we see in his heart as he prays for others and pleads with God to spare the wicked people of Sodom. We discover that grace, as it comes into our lives, it demands that we take on the role of priests and start interceding for others around us. So we're looking at this idea of priesthood, and I'll develop it more as we talk. Our outline is very simple. We have three points today. First, we're going to look at the invitation to the priesthood, when God welcomes Abraham to come and pray for the people of Sodom. Secondly, we'll look at the limitation of his priesthood, as he prays and eventually walks away from that prayer and really fails in his intercession in some ways. And finally, we will consider the transformation of our priesthood under the high priesthood of Christ. So the invitation, the limitation, and the transformation 
is our outline. Okay, so as we look at this prayer, and that is the first extended intercessory prayer in the Bible. By intercessory, I mean somebody praying for someone else on behalf of someone else. But the way it comes about is interesting. It's preceded by the Lord saying, this is verse 17, so a little bit before the passage that we read, the Lord saying, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now what God is about to do is He's going to punish Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll be looking at that story in more detail next week, so I'm not going to talk about what sin there was and why God was punishing them, but God's plan is to punish this particular city. But before he does that, he talks to Abraham and he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? It's the same as you saying to someone, I really shouldn't be telling you that, but... Right, and you're going to tell them. It's God saying, I want to tell you something I'm about to do. He is involving Abraham into this exchange. God is choosing to reveal his plans to this man and he invites him into a discussion about the future of the wicked cities. Now that seems surprising to me. Why would a sovereign God do that? Does he need to consult a man about his plans? No. Why is he inviting Abraham into this dialogue about Sodom? Well, I think there's at least there are two reasons for it. First one is that God involves Abraham as his friend. God has a relationship with Abraham. In verse 19, it says that the Lord has chosen Abraham. Your ESV Bibles will give you a footnote that says that chosen could be translated as known. It's a relational word. God has known and chosen Abraham to be his friend. He shares his plans with Abraham because of the type of relationship that they have. The type of friendship that they share demands that God would involve Abraham in his plans. Now, we know how it works in human relationships, right? If you think you were friends with someone and then on Facebook you find out they're moving to another state, you say, oh, I guess we weren't as close of friends as I thought we were, right? Because if we were, if we, if we really were friends, they would have involved me as their friend into this decision as they were making the decision. Not after the fact, announcing in a very impersonal way, but I would have been part of that discussion. And maybe they didn't need my advice, but at least they would have shared with me what was happening in their lives. And Scripture, several times, refers to Abraham as God's friend. And so, as God's friend, there are certain expectations on that relationship. Abraham has certain privileges and benefits, right? Being God's friend. He's accepted with him. He is blessed by him. But what's amazing to me is that God, as Abraham's friend, also understands that there are certain expectations on him as part of that relationship. So it's as if God says, I will be a good friend to Abraham, and good friends do not keep secrets, so I'm going to tell him what I plan to do with Sodom, because that is what friends do. That is 
That is utterly amazing. That God, not only that God would befriend somebody and say, now you are my friend, with all that that entails. But God is also saying, now I am your friend. And so I will now behave, God says, as a good friend to you. Which means now you're going to know what I'm planning to do. You're going to know what I'm feeling. You're going to know the things that I am thinking about. God doesn't hide those things from his friends. That's remarkable, isn't it? That God would think that way. He doesn't need Abraham's friendship. He doesn't need to run his ideas by him. And yet he does, out of the context of this rich, close, intimate friendship that he now shares with a man. God wants to be in a close relationship with us. The amazing thing is it doesn't just go one way, that it goes both ways. We change because we are now in a relationship with God, but God changes because we are now in a relationship with Him. That is amazing that God would say to be a friend means to be in a dialogue with you, means to be in a conversation with you, means to change for me because of you. Now, of course, we see it supremely in the incarnation of Jesus. God does actually change, taking on the human nature and becoming one of us, becoming close with us. God becomes one of us because He wants that kind of relationship with us. And to all who follow Him, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Be encouraged, Christians. God is your friend, and you are friends to Him. God has decided to reveal His thoughts and His plans to us because we are His chosen friends. Now let that privilege and that surprising new relationship affect your prayers, affect your reading of the Bible, affect your worship at church. There's another reason, the second reason why God involves Abraham into this conversation is because Abraham is now his priest. Abraham becomes an advocate for the people of Sodom. God wants Abraham to pray. He wants Abraham to act as a priest. Now what is a priest? Well, quite simply, a priest is someone who mediates, someone who comes between God and others. And God is involving Abraham just in that way. God is saying, I'm going to reveal my plans to you so that you can now intercede on behalf of the people of Sodom. Now you pray for them in front of me. Now you come to me on their behalf. Remember, part of the promise to Abraham 
was that He will become a blessing to other nations, to other people. And now Abraham is invited to be a blessing to the people of Sodom, people who are about to be judged by God. And so God is asking Abraham to pray for them, to be a blessing to them. So this first extensive prayer recorded in the Bible is not about the needs of the person who's praying. It's about the needs of the other people. And not just any other people. It's not just his family. Of course, he's praying for Lot as well, but he doesn't actually bring up Lot and his family in this prayer. He's praying for the wicked people. He's asking that God would spare the wicked people of Sodom. More than that, these people are occupying the land that God had promised to him. And so he is praying that God would spare the people who are standing in between him and the possession of the land that God promised to him. This is a remarkable prayer. God is drawing him in into this conversation about Sodom. And he's making him now a priest for the wicked people. And when Abraham prays for them, and he's trying to figure out a way for God to forgive and to spare them, God silently delights in that prayer. Why? Well, because it's God's own heart. It's God's own disposition to save and to bless. Now, I want to be careful here. So I want to say that God's basic general disposition is to save. It's not to say that God doesn't judge. God is also a just judge. But His basic general disposition is towards our good. It is to save us. It is to bless us, even the wicked. Ezekiel 18.23 says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. That's the heart of God. God is saying, I don't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would rather they would turn and live. And even as he is pronouncing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, he is involving Abraham into this prayer and, and, and encouraging him to pray so that God would spare them, so that God would save them, so God would forgive them. And so Abraham is exercising this kind of priestly function. Verse 23 says that Abraham drew near to God. He drew near. It can also be translated as approached or stepped forward. It's a term used of someone delivering a legal plea, like an advocate, like a lawyer, requesting that justice be done on behalf of the defendant. God invites Abraham to defend Sodom, to become their advocate before God. Now, we can read this story and we can applaud Abraham's desire for the people of Sodom to be spared. We can talk about his compassionate heart and how much grace has so affected him 
that he has now take, taken on this disposition that is really God's disposition to bless and save, that he now thinks as God thinks and feels as God feels. We can just marvel about that and talk about Abraham. But have we forgotten that we too are called to be God's priests? 1 Peter 2.9 that we too are invited by God to advocate, to be advocates for our neighbors, to plead on their behalf, to ask God to spare them. Now, of course, it's an incredible honor to be God's friend and to learn about His plans to punish sin. But what about the responsibility that comes with this honor? I know what God is about to do because God has revealed it to me as His friend. Now, am I taking that knowledge to the next step and now praying for those who are under God's judgment? My question is very simple today to all of us. Are we burdened by those around us who don't know Jesus? Are we burdened for them, so that we pray prayers like this one, so that we draw near to God as lawyers, as advocates, as priests, for our relatives, for our neighbors, for our community, for our co-workers. And so we come and we say, God, spare them, because we know what you're about to do. Spare them. We come to you on their behalf because we care about them. We've been burdened for them. We know from Scripture that all people are under God's wrath because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The question is, has God's grace that we experienced ourselves by being spared, has that affected our hearts so much that we have now taken on the disposition of God and we are now burdened for them, we are now praying for them, we are now interceding on their behalf. That God's grace has affected us so deeply that we have become priests for others around us. There's a great story about Adoniram Judson and specifically about his conversion that tells us how being burdened for someone who is lost can fuel a different kind of life for us. And Aniram Judson was the first missionary to Burma. He was born in the late 1700s in New England, grew up in a Christian home, was brought up as a believer, and then he went off to college, went to Providence College, which is now Brown University, and when he graduated, by the way, he was, he was valedictorian of his class. He's a very smart, brilliant young man. But when he graduated from Brown, he told his parents that, I'm no longer a Christian. I do not believe what I was taught as a child. I don't believe in the God of the Bible anymore. So something happened during his years at Brown. There were other people who influenced him, particularly his friend, Jacob Eames. Jacob Eames was a brilliant man himself. 
And so he, over time, talked to Adoniram Judson about his struggles with Christianity and that he eventually arrived at this conclusion that the Bible isn't true, that God doesn't exist. And in fact, Jacob Eames uh, openly mocked Christianity. He was a scoffer. And many people followed him in that, including Judson. So by the time Judson graduated, he did not consider himself to be a Christian. He moved to New York to pursue a career in theater. And after a while, having failed as a playwright, Judson decided to return home to Massachusetts. Now on the way home, he had to stop at a country inn to spend the night. And the only room that was available was next to a room where a man was dying. And so Judson had no other choice, and he said, I'll take the room. And all through the night, he heard how this man cried out in agony, literally on his deathbed, crying in pain, crying in in hopelessness and despair, faced with his own death. Well, Judson stayed up most of the night, couldn't sleep, was thinking about his own mortality, was thinking about his own faith and considering... Well, what if, what if I'm wrong? What if what I abandoned really is true? What if God does exist? And so am I going to be able to face death? So as he was wrestling with that, listening to the man next door crying out in agony, finally he fell asleep, the man quieted down. And so the next morning, Judson asked at the desk about the man in the next room. And he was told that he had passed away early in the morning. Judson said, well, who was he anyway? And the clerk said, oh, he was a young man from Providence College. Judson said, what a strange coincidence. I too went to to Providence College, Judson said. And the innkeeper replied, well, maybe you know him. Did you happen to know Mr. Jacob Eames? The very man who steered him away from faith now spent the night in the next room dying in agony, in hopelessness. That was the turning point for Judson. He got converted. He ran to Christ because he saw what that hopelessness sounded like, what it looked like. The man that he admired for his courage to face the world without God was crying in agony at his death. And so Judson realized that there was something more to life, that God was real, that the Bible was true, and he came to Christ himself. But more than that, having experienced that lostness next door, having been so burdened for his friend, he decided to commit his life to missions. Went to Burma, which is now Myanmar, the first missionary there, I think seven years until the first convert, Tremendous hardship, buried his wife and his children in Burma, was tortured. There there are so many stories that are connected with his service. And yet, single-mindedly pursuing the well-being of the lost in Burma. He was so burdened for the lost that his whole life was now about bringing hope to them. He translated the Bible, first translation of the Bible in Burma, It is still used today 
by the Burmese Christians. Today, they're still reading the Bible translated by Judson. Now, this is a dramatic story, right? It's true. It's a true story. But most of us have not spent a night next door to a dying person. And yet, that is a picture of the reality that all of us are engaged in. I mean, isn't that true that all around us, people are suffering without Christ, people are dying without Christ? I mean, isn't that true? Have we just simply distracted ourselves from that reality so we don't have to think about that? Doesn't make it any less true, doesn't make it any less real. And so are we burdened for the people around us? Are we willing to pray as Abraham prayed so God would spare them, so God would forgive them, so God would welcome them into His presence? Now let's look at the prayer itself. There's a limitation to this prayer that I'd like to consider. As you read this dialogue between God and Abraham, to me it seems rather strange why is Abraham counting down from 50? That's my first question. Why start at 50? And then why end at 10? And what's with all the bargaining with God, right? That's not how most of us pray, right? This is what one commentator says about this prayer. He says, It would be easy to say that this prayer comes near to haggling. But the right word is exploring. Abraham is feeling his way forward in a spirit of faith, of humility, in his whole mode of address and of love demonstrated in his concern for the whole city, not for his kinsmen alone. It's not haggling, it's not bargaining, it's exploration. There's a theological exploration that happens in this prayer. Let me explain what I mean. Remember that Abraham lived in a communal culture. He understood very well that one person's sin affected other people. Now they may be innocent, they may not be directly involved in that sin, but that person's sin is going to affect everybody else around them. People in his culture did not just go after their enemies, they went after their enemies' families. Because I was understood that other people are involved in someone's personal sin. Now remember, a few chapters back, Lot was captured by the eastern kings. Now Lot didn't have anything to do with the conflict between Sodom and Gomorrah and the other kings and those eastern kings. He wasn't a part of that. He didn't contribute anything to that conflict. And yet, because he lived where he lived, he got captured and he got caught up in this whole conflict. In fact, Abraham had to go and save him. Now that's in the background of this story. Abraham knows that one person's wickedness could affect other people, though they may be righteous. Now the question that Abraham is exploring in this prayer is, could it work in reverse? Could the wicked be spared for the sake of the righteous? Now he knew that the righteous were affected by the wicked. They could be harmed by the wickedness of others. But the question is, 
Could the wicked be spared for the sake of the righteous? Could some people's righteousness be so great that it would affect people who are actually wicked? Abraham is not praying for the righteous people to be taken out of the wicked Sodom. He is exploring whether the presence of the righteous in Sodom would protect the wicked from God's wrath. And so he starts with 50 righteous. Probably, this is a guess, but probably because 50 is half the size of a small ancient city. So he starts with half. This is a safe place to start. He's saying, God, what if half of them were righteous? Would you still punish the whole city for the wickedness of the half, even though half of them are righteous? Or would you spare them for the sake of the 50 righteous? And God says, yes, I would spare the whole city for the sake of the 50 righteous people. Okay. This is a very important step here. God says yes. God affirms Abraham's guess, his exploration into this this reality, that in fact someone's righteousness could cover other people's sins. That some wicked people could be spared for the sake of other righteous people in their midst. Now the next question is, well, what's the acceptable ratio? That's what he's doing. He's saying, okay, If half of them were righteous, you would spare the whole city. But what about 45%? What if only 45 people were righteous? Would you spare the whole city? And God says, yes, I would spare the whole city if 45% were righteous. Then Abraham goes, okay, how about 40? Do you see how he's he's investigating this new reality to him? He's, He's exploring this possibility that somebody could be spared the wicked themselves for the sake of someone else's righteousness. And so he's exploring that and he goes down to 30. God says yes. Then he says, what about 20? God says yes. And then what about 10? And the Lord says yes to that. Now, as I read this and as you read it, probably you can feel the tension building, right? You're waiting for him to arrive somewhere. And so there's this this build-up. He starts with 50. He says, God, what if 50 were there? And God says, I would spare the city. Abraham says, what about 45? And God says, I would spare the city then. He says, what about 40? God says, yes. What about 30? God says, yes. What about 20? God says, yes, I will spare the city. What about 10? And then Abraham walks away. They just go home. What happened? You know, it's like that song. The Beatles have the song, A Day in the Life. Is anybody familiar with that song? It ends on this this crescendo where all the instruments start with the lowest note and then slowly build up to the highest note. And then there's a resolution. There's this, this massive, I think like three people chord that's played, the E major chord that resolves the tension, and that's where the song ends. Well, what's happening here is you have the crescendo, but the chord never sounds. This tension is never resolved. He stops at 10. Why? Why not go further? What about 5? What about 2? What about 1? Why is Abraham 
walking away when we least expect him to do that? I mean, I mean, don't you, as you read it, don't you expect him to go down to one and find out what God says to that? Why is he not going there? My guess is that by the time Abraham gets to the possibility of only one person being so righteous that the whole city would be spared, he realizes there's nobody that righteous. Sure, Lot is there and he's sort of a righteous fellow, but not that righteous. And then as he thinks about other people, he's thinking, well, I'm not righteous enough for God to spare the whole city for my sake. And so as he gets to 10, I think this is in the back of his mind, he's thinking, but you have to be really righteous for God to spare the whole city for one person's sake. And there's nobody like that. And so he stops. He stops because he doesn't have anybody to put forth as a candidate for whose sake the whole city could be spared. And so he simply walks away. This is the limitation of his priesthood. He could only go to ten. He could only imagine that God would save the whole city for the sake of ten righteous people. But he couldn't imagine that there would be somebody so righteous for whose sake, the only person for whose sake, the whole city would be spared. There simply wasn't anybody around like that in his life. Now let's think about our priesthood. Our priesthood is different from Abraham's. It's been transformed. We don't have to stop at 10 when we pray to God for Him to spare nations and cities and neighborhoods. We have what Abraham was longing for, grasping for. You see, I think Abraham was intuitively looking for the gospel of God's grace in Jesus. The logical extension of that, that, that prayer, that, that direction of his plea, was that there would be somebody like that, would be somebody righteous enough. There would be somebody for whose sake God would spare a whole city. Abraham thought it might be possible for God's mercy to triumph over judgment that it might be possible for the wicked to be saved for the sake of someone who is righteous. He was grasping for substitutionary atonement. He was grasping for alien righteousness, those doctrines that are familiar to us, but that he had no idea about. But that's where the prayer leads. That's what the crescendo builds. He was going as far as he could go, but he knew that if there was somebody righteous enough, he could go further. He could pray for Sodom and God might spare them. He simply didn't know that person. But we do. The crescendo of Abraham's intercession would not resolve itself for another 2,000 years. That final chord we expected at the end of Abraham's prayer did not sound then, but it did sound later. 
the final cord of the many wickets spared on behalf of the one righteous one sounded in another prayer. John 17. The prayer that we often refer to as Christ's high priestly prayer. He too is praying for God's blessing for His people, for God's protection, for God to keep His followers united. But as Jesus is praying for us and those who would come after us, at one point He says, this is verse 19 of chapter 17 of John, at one point Jesus says, For their sake I consecrate Myself. As a priest pleading on behalf of the wicked people, Jesus says at one point, For their sake I consecrate myself. Do you know what Jesus is actually praying here? Jesus takes Abraham's prayer to its logical last question. Jesus says, Lord, suppose there was only one righteous in this wicked city. Would you spare this city for the sake of one? And the Father says, Yes, I would spare this wicked city for the sake of one righteous person. And then Jesus says, I am that righteous person. I consecrate myself for the sake of them. He's saying, Father, you can now spare them for my sake. You can now bless them for my sake. You can protect them for my sake. Father, love them for my sake. I am that righteous person on whose behalf, for whose sake, the whole wicked city could be spared. The grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. One righteous person, and now for his sake, many are being spared. Prophet Isaiah writes that this Jesus, the righteous one, and by the way, Isaiah was also longing for the same thing Abraham was longing for. He was grasping for alien righteousness. He was grasping for substitutionary atonement. Isaiah writes that this Jesus, the righteous one, will make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Where Abraham failed as a priest we can succeed. He could only go down to ten, but we can go all the way down to one. Our priesthood has been transformed by the knowledge of the righteous one. We know that God's own Son moved into the wicked city. That He lived righteously among the wicked. That He died for the sins of the wicked. Godly dying for the ungodly, that he rose again, rose again to be seated at the right hand of the Father, 
where he is doing what? He's interceding for the wicked. He never ceases praying for us, saying, Father, spare them for my sake. I vouch for them. My righteousness now applies to them, though they are wicked and deserve your wrath. We know Him, that high priest, that righteous one, that sacrifice, and that changes our ability to intercede for our neighbors. So even as Christ prays, Father, spare them for my sake, we pray, Father, spare them for His sake, for the sake of the righteous one, spare this wicked city. We're going to come to the table and we're going to taste the bread and take the cup. That's a reminder for us that He is the righteous one who died for us. That His righteousness is credited to us by faith. And we celebrate that as we come to the table. So let me exercise my priestly function today and ask you if you have been spared for the sake of this righteous one. If He is your high priest, your perfect sacrifice, if His righteousness is now your righteousness, so that when you come to the Father, you come in His name, and for His sake, and on His behalf, because He is righteous enough to cover your sins. Is that your experience? If it is your experience, you are welcome at this table. We welcome you to join us. All of us that are believers that have been spared for His sake, we come and we celebrate that amazing change that happened to us. But if you are not, I plead with you, and I plead with the Father, that you would be spared for His sake. That now your heart would be changed and faith would rise up in your heart. That you would trust Him and you would say, I can go down to one person and I could be spared because of that one person. He is so righteous that for His sake God can accept even me. I pray that you meet Jesus today. And for those of us who are believers, maybe have walked in this reality for many years, my application for all of us is to be burdened for others, to exercise this priestly privilege towards others. Are you praying for your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, your family members as their priest, as their advocate, as an advocate that is also a friend of God, who knows the mind of God, knows His plans, knows His heart, and prays on the basis of that knowledge. Are you burdened for them? I'm going to pray. As I pray, the musicians will come up and we, we will start singing a song to reflect on these truths further. I'd like to encourage you to come to the table. We'll all come forward, take the cup and the bread here, if you'd like to take it right up front here, you're welcome to do that. If you need more time to reflect, 
You can go back to your seats and take time to pray before you take communion. And then we will go into our final song where there will be a call for response and hopefully in our hearts we'll respond to this message as saying we want to be his priests for others. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a God who saves, a God who forgives, that you are merciful, that your general disposition is to save. We pray that that would become our disposition too, that we too would seek to serve and bless and, and save others. Lord, I pray that as we reflect on Christ, the righteous one, our high priest, our substitution, our sacrifice, I pray that we would not just walk away marveling at that metaphysical reality, but that we would walk away being changed in our hearts and our very being that we have been spared because of His righteousness, that we now can pray for others to be spared because of His righteousness. Holy Spirit, would you come and work in our hearts, convert, encourage, convict us. Lord, I pray that as we take this communion, it would not be an empty ritual. It would not be just simply going through the motions. But it would be an expression, an outward expression of the reality of our faith in Christ. Lord, we confess that often we are not acting like priests to others. That we ourselves often forget that we've been spared for the sake of Christ. So I pray that you would remind us. Remind us that Jesus came and was born a human baby, grew up fully human and yet remaining fully God, two natures in one person, that he suffered and died for us, that he was unjustly condemned, that he was sentenced to death for crimes that he did not commit, that he was crucified and died in agony as if he was lost himself, and yet he did it for our sakes, that he rose again from the dead, declaring victory over sin, over death, over the devil, and that He now, even now, is interceding for us. Lord, if I really believed that Jesus never stops praying for me, what would my life look like? I pray that You would speak to us by Your Holy Spirit and encourage us to live it out in Jesus' name.